Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rate travel money at participating credit unions. Good morning. Might you be ready for a bit of a quiz? Gilga, August Berla, go on. It is July 1973 and it is time for 20 questions. We've asked our audience here at Fairview Ladies Club to suggest an object for the panel to guess. Now we'll now draw a name from the hat which we'll research during the programme and we'll then challenge the panel. If the panel fail to find out what the object is, that person will win two pounds. And even if the panel do find out what the object is, that person will still win one pound. The name we've drawn from the hat is Mrs L Quigley, Carlton Road, Marino. Let's start our game by telling you that our first object is Animal, Toshe Anavich, Toshe A Hespant and Lothishta, August and Osfa Divsha Sawelia Kadefene. Agashe Hedro the Erenglar going on show, no Tarav Karale, a Sharale Bull, Agastashe Anavich. Anavich. Need in a A. Well, Anavich, Anavich. More than one person, perhaps. No. Four feet. Four feet, Tarav. Yes, yes. I'm making four questions, Gar. Is this a household pit? It's not. <laughs> no. no. Is this only seen in the zoo in Ireland? Uh, no. No. Farmyard animal, perhaps? Uh, yeah. Yes. Keep it fucking, I got a little help. Gar Kelm, Ganantalt, Nadenhoff. Does this animal give milk? No. <laughs> Just shows you all you know about it. <laughs> it's not all bull, then, is it? <laughs> A something bull. A something bull. Fair enough, yes, it is. Nine Pro- gone. A premium bull. It's not, no. Prize bull. <laughs> no, no. Eleven gone. A people bull. An Irish no. bull. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm afraid I'll have to keep you in suspense for the answer until later in the programme. Oh, the big tease, Will Hannafin, unsure it was better. And some of the clips in the programme were indeed both hilarious and at times kind of poignant. But what did the panel of Emer McLeisett, Jules Call and Pauline McLean make of the 20 questions? I thought when this started, how did they manage to make this 20 questions quiz format interesting? I was gripped. Me too. <laughs> Simple times. It was brilliant. Uh, fabulous. And I have to say, one of the silliest things I've ever heard in my life. Um, <laughs> very, very silly questions. And uh, oh God, we love a quiz though, don't we? It's funny listening to it as well, because a quiz is a perennial favourite. And it's kind of like to do a new kind is almost like reinventing the wheel, isn't it? Um, which leads us to this fabulous two pound and one pound questions are very very silly indeed they should bring it back I think they should too I love the bilingual aspect of yes. it as well and no, yes. no GDPR back then because they gave out that lady's full name Mrs. and Quigley, address yeah. and she's got the two pounds <laughs> <laughs> I, I, hopefully we, we'll, we'll get to find out if they find out the answer. Yeah. And because we are not meanies, we will give you that answer later. You are not the only one who can do some teasing, Hannafin. Now, find yourself in the supermarket. Not quite sure what you came in for. Meeting an old friend, if only you could remember their name. And that song, what is it called again? Oh, memory. Fantastic when it works, but when it doesn't mortal. So why do we remember certain things and not others? While bending, raise mind Dr. Thomas Ryan of Trinity College. What happens when we form a memory? There's there's a big question for you. Right, so we don't really know as neuroscientists how memories are formed in the brain. I often say 
I'm a neuroscientist, which is just another way of saying that I don't understand how the brain works. <laughs> so neuroscience is still really at the frontier of science. So what we know about memory is that something is happening in a subset of our brain cells. So your brain is made up of billions of different cells that are connected in a web. And it's electrically active, which is why we can think so quickly. When we form a memory, what we think is happening is certain cells in that web in your brain are undergoing some kind of a physical change. And we call that change an engram. So when you form a memory, we think you're forming an engram uh, in your brain. And he gave what might be the greatest spin of all on the term forgetting. What we call forgetting really is about not getting the memory you want at that particular point in time. And what we have is competition between hundreds or thousands of different memories that are existing in your nice. brain as different <laughs> engrams in that kind of web. Oh, we like this. And he gave us more because it's not even our fault. It is the fault of our brain and in particular our unconscious. Your brain is much smarter than you are, Ray, right? The brain is an extremely complicated machine. It evolved over millions, billions of years. Right. It manages how you walk, talk and do everything. Right. But you're only a very small part of your brain. You're this <laughs> conscious part of your brain that thinks it's driving everything you're doing. But most of what you're doing is unconscious. What right. your brain is doing is unconsciously managing the memories that it has. So just because you think you should be remembering a particular thing at a particular point in time, your brain might have a different idea and your brain may be retrieving different memories. But why? So That's my, my, my question is why? Because, for example, because right, let, the let's brain is, go on. For example, I, I know that, say, Owen Paul released a song in the 80s called You're My Favourite Waste of Time. Now, to me, that's yeah. a waste of space in my brain. I would like to get rid of that and free that particular part of my brain up for more important memories. But my brain holds on to it and other useless pieces of information. So does my brain, it being smarter than me, think that that's more important than the stuff that I think is important? Do you get me? Yeah, our, our idea of what's socially important is, is a rather new thing and we're still figuring it out. Your brain is mostly concerned with staying warm, getting food, having sex <laughs> and staying alive. And when it's not doing those things, all kinds of random stuff happens. And, if, and it's really important that the random stuff happens because if it didn't happen, we wouldn't get creative and we wouldn't have good ideas. Yeah. So the brain is making predictions about the world. And so what I think is happening is when the brain is forgetting, what it's actually doing is learning and it's reprioritizing its memories. And all of this has profound implications as to how we view dementia and Alzheimer's. Because the way we think about forgetting and the way we think about amnesia in aging or Alzheimer's or, or brain injury is that the memories are broken. The engram cells are broken and we're not getting them back. What we've learned from this kind of work is, first of all, that the memories are still in the brain. But more than that, they may, they may not even be broken. There may be nothing wrong with them. What might be happening in things like Alzheimer's disease is that the brain is mistakenly prioritizing other memories and it's crowding the brain with memories that uh -huh. are less and less relevant to the given experience. So we need to think about forgetting as... Uh, basically a bottleneck of what kinds of memories can emerge uh, in your consciousness. Wow. Blowing our little minds. Dr. Thomas Ryan of Trinity College with Ray. Meanwhile, on Arena, Johnny Easterby returns to the Botanic Gardens with his new fringe installation. It's called the Garden of Shadows and he spoke to Kay. Suppose light and shade and shadow is is so important in any form of art. What is it you wanted to explore in the shadows? I think 
you know, the realization that obviously, you know, we live in a, I mean, I'm standing in the studio and we've, I can't even count the number of lights that are in here. So we live, in, we live in this very, as far as I'm con- concerned, a very overlit world. And, I, you know, I live in a very rural part of Wales up in the hills in a very old Welsh farmhouse, which didn't really have, it hasn't got very big windows. And so we live in a, you know, me and my wife live in a very... <laughs> shadowy existence and we get this incredible night skies and so working with light you really and within all aspects of theatre you really start to explore there is no light without darkness and um, there is no beauty without shadow as far as I'm concerned. And is that a concern of yours how much light there is in not just in the studio but like with everybody using their phones and everything seems to be super lit these days rather than shadow and shade and subtlety seems to be being lost. I think that's very much just actually part of my existence and the fact that we don't give ourselves darkness we don't give ourselves space we don't allow ourselves to be bored or to not be looking at things and shadow gives us um, and and darkness gives a chance to contemplate things people associate it with just switching the light off and going to sleep and actually we're a little bit scared of darkness and shade as as the artist Richard Long said you know we're not afraid of the trees we're afraid of the darkness in between them so I'd really like to give people I really like to give people a sense of if I can pure black and pure darkness which of course is very hard to find in the middle of Dublin And if you do go along, expect to see, or maybe even hear, some blackbirds. The blackbird is my, um, kind of like my totem, really. I mean, I have dozens of them breeding and living and squabbling and singing with their beautiful song all the time around me. And in fact, this year I had a blackbird that was made a nest in my studio about two metres above my workbench. And we kind of came to an arrangement that <laughs> and all of my equipment is covered in swallows, <laughs> doo-doos as well sort of thing. So, yeah, that, that, the, the whole thing is, is, is... But the blackbird is... I mean, I guess you could call the black... You know, the blackbird is a shadow, a kind of shadow bird as well. And they literally shadow you as you walk around the garden looking for the worms that you've turned over as well, so in, in many different ways. But the blackbird song is my favourite song and it... It runs a very a deep thread through 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 my work for many years. What's that coming downstream? Blackbird, blackbird, what do you sing? Fish nor fowl no longer swim. Blackbird, blackbird, what do you sing? Trouble is flows out the drain something is very wrong is that the blackbird song from arena on the county measure it was the turn of a tip born and raised in london it has been the home of writer siobhan mcgowan for some 30 years now she met Vincent Woods on the edge of Loch Derg and recalled her summers spent in Tipperary with her brother Shane. We were out in the fields like till 11 at night because the summer nights, you see, and it was safe. But then 6 o'clock every evening was the rosary and Auntie Nora used to come and uh, she'd go, Shane, 
Siobhan! And there was an old stone wall and we ducked down, like, you know. Actually, that's mentioned in the Broad Majestic Shannon. Ducked down behind the stone wall and hide, you see. But in the end, they would not give up and we had to, like, trudge across, like, you know. So, yeah, so there was a lot of, a lot of times there at that house, a lot. Was that part of the draw that, that brought you back? Well, I mean, I, I think there's no doubt that I always felt totally Irish. Like, you know, I know my accent is not. So I always felt, I always felt a huge pull. And I, I remember actually saying to Dad when I was 12, I said, I will go back and live in Ireland, you know, Dad. So, uh, so we always laugh about that. So, but yes, it was, it was a huge pull. Her second novel is called The Graces. She is now the writer. She'd always dreamt she would be. It's great that you have achieved, you know, what you imagined as a child, seeing your name on a book. Is there immense satisfaction in that? Yeah, I actually said recently that uh, getting my first publishing deal and getting my first book published felt like coming home, like somewhere I always wanted to be and that I had been trying to get to for so long. So it had this complete sense of contentment and fulfilment and I'd actually done what I'd been striving to do for so long. My dear mother died like six years ago and as she was getting older I said to her, Mum, I said, you know, you know, I wanted to be a writer so long. I said, what if you go before I achieve it? I said, you won't know. And she said, well, first of all, I will know. And second, she said, I do know. So I feel that even though she's not here to see it, she knew already. And there was another tribute to the power and pull of mothers with Oliver. Miriam Mulcahy's book is called This Is My Sea and it's a meditation of sorts on grief in the wake of the deaths of her father, sister and mother. Your mum, for the want of it, she has a beautiful death. It was it was incredible and it was absolutely the death she wanted. You know, she died very young and she, you know, she died very quickly. But I was uncomfortable by the fact that she got the death she wanted. She died at home, surrounded by the four of us, mm. uh, her family. And uh, your brother tells a story to her, doesn't she, as she's slipping away? Uh, my brother did something extraordinary that day. And that, in, in a way, to me, is the heart of the book. And it's one of the reasons I, I wrote the book, because I wanted to tell the story of what my brother did that day. Uh, when mum was dying, one of the first questions we asked the oncologist was, can we take her back to Kerry? And he said, absolutely not. No way, she'll never survive the journey. So there was always a sense of, you know, she's not going to get back there. And then on the day that she died, um, my brother basically uh, said to her, uh, Mom, I want you to take my hand and I want you to come for a walk with me. And he walked her down the road to Ra from the caravan and he had her stopping to say hello to everybody as she, as she walked down the road. And he described the road with all the wildflowers and the bird song. Yeah. And then they arrived down at the beach and he had her walking over the beach, put her on the pier. Uh, and, you know, he just did this extraordinary thing where he kept us on the pier. He said, we, we can't go with you, but dad is swimming in the water. Dad is waiting for you, mum. And, you know, you go down to him, you get in the water and you swim with them and... You know, he said, tell him we love him and tell him we miss him. And then the two of them swam away. And it was this extraordinary power. I've never seen anybody do something so beautiful for anyone. And it was like the sense of, you know, when a woman gets married, her father hands her to her husband. Mm -hmm. And here's a woman who's dying and her son is handing her back to her husband. And there was a beautiful sense of a life completed as well as it could be. Yeah. You know, in, in the most beautiful manner possible. On Wednesday's Blue of the Night, Brenda Clark played this from the Swedish folk band Free Fought. Uh, 
Welcome back. On Sunday, the deaths of two men competing in an Ironman event in Yall in County Cork. Their names were Ivan Chittenden, aged 64, and Brendan Wall, aged 45. On Monday's Morning Ireland, Jenny O'Sullivan brought us this. The half uh, triathlon had been due to take place on Saturday, but the aftermath of Storm Betty left an awful lot of debris on the roads in and around Yall. So it was decided for safety reasons that it would be deferred or cancelled until the following morning. So that meant that both the full triathlon and half triathlons were scheduled to get underway yesterday. That meant there was about, I think, about a thousand competitors registered to take part in each of these triathlons, Audrey. Now, the the swim, uh, the swim is the first element and that was due to begin at half six from Clay Castle Beach but um, it was delayed initially because of the arrival of competitors getting to the site but also um, the Ironman uh, Ireland organisers issued a statement beforehand saying look that due to the current conditions of the water the actual course which would normally be about 3.8 kilometres would be 1.9 kilometres for all competitors and they said um, that this means that we can focus all of our swim safety crew on delivering the safest possible swim for all our athletes so there was acceptance that the weather conditions were um, challenging and it, it, it was it could be clearly seen from footage that emerged afterwards and from uh, the testimony of those who took part in that section that the conditions were definitely challenging now from one of the people we spoke to getting out to the boy was very difficult it took an aw- it took an awful lot of effort but once they got to the boy and rounded it it was easier to get back in but it's understood both men got into difficulties separately. They were treated medically at the scene, but unfortunately, both were pronounced dead. With Joe on Tuesday's Liveline, Stephen, and an insight into what it was like to be in the water on Sunday. What was it like as you went into the water? Well, I did the full distance, so we, we were hanging around for, for quite a while really before we went into the water and we could see, you know, the distances had been changed for everybody and there was a, a delay getting in, so there was a, a huge build-up to mm-hmm. anybody getting in. Um, but when we were, you know, the, the fullest athletes were waiting to go in, we, we could see the, the half-athletes going in and really struggling. There's a lot of people, like, trying to swim in 50, 60, 100 metres and swimming back out because they couldn't manage it. There was... Yeah. 
athletes helping others out and there was athletes coming out and trying to go back in and, and go for it again. So th- there was a bit of, you know, over 3,000 people got into the water and got through it. Um, but there's a lot of people thinking, you know, like, what are we doing? Why are we doing yeah. it? Um, and then the, on the other side, there's a lot of people say, well, I've, I've worked really hard, so I'm, yeah. you know, to get to this point, I'm going to I'm going to do it and I'm going to get through it. So, you know, it was a mixed bag of emotions and mixed bag of mm. conversations really happening on the side, looking at some of the the waves and the people getting yeah. smacked back out of it. So. And the protocol for swimmers in difficulty or needing assistance is to float on your back and raise your hand. Did you see many people with their hands up? Yeah, loads. Wow. And compared to, say, I know you've done an Ironman before, um, compared to the pre, and you've watched them, compared to previous events, the number of people with their hand in the air uh, trying to float on their back, seeking assistance, how did that compare and contrast with previous competitions? I've never seen it previously. You'd never that seen That doesn't it. mean it hasn't happened. Okay, no, but you've I never seen that, that number seen of people. Well, I've never seen, no, I've never seen anybody actually wow. in any of the races I've done put their hand up for assistance. Now, when... You might see it in the later, you know, when you come to the end of the swim or halfway through, yeah. but so early on, no. Stephen on Tuesday's Live Line. And as the week progressed, a dispute over timelines between Triathlon Ireland and Ironman Ireland as to when Triathlon Ireland had withdrawn their sanction for the event. They say before the swim. Ironman Ireland say it was several hours after. Green Party TD for Waterford, Mark O'Casey, has completed two Ironman events and has helped coordinate triathlons. He joined Rachel on Wednesday's Morning Ireland. From the accounts you've heard and the pictures you've seen, should this event have gone ahead on Sunday? Well, I mean, it's difficult for me to make that call at this remove and that's one of the main reasons that Triathlon Ireland uh, officials and race um, race officials are on scene and on site. What I would say from, I, I suppose I would be an experienced sea swimmer. I'm based here in Tremor. Waves like that wouldn't be unusual on the beach in Tremor. But that those looked like challenging conditions to me. Uh, and I'd be very conscious as well that there's there's a lot of triathletes who turn up to this event, these type of events, who will have done the majority of their training either in pools or in lakes. Um, the beginning of an Ironman event is is always a very stressful occasion. You have a lot of athletes entering the water at the same time. Everybody is, you know, hyped up. They've spent a, a lot of time and a lot of money getting ready. So there, there's a huge amount of nervous energy at the start line to inject into that the additional stress of trying to make your way out through the conditions that we saw on Yol, where you had this significant shore dump where the, the, the waves were breaking right onto the steps where the athletes were trying to make their way out. That was going to always add an additional layer of stress and and also you have a situation where people who are maybe are more used to those conditions or who are stronger can stronger swimmers can more easily make their way out through the breaking water whereas athletes who mightn't be as used to those conditions are going to get passed by they're going to get jostled uh, and it's going to add an extra layer of stress mm-hmm. to those people who are already as i said very nervous from wednesday's at morning ireland and locals in Yall in Cork held a candlelight vigil on Thursday evening as a show of support to Mr Wall and Mr Chittenden's bereaved families.
on Wednesday evening. Breaking news. We are getting reports from Russian news agencies quoting the air authorities that Yevgeny Prigozhin's private jet was shot down while making its way from Moscow to St. Petersburg. There is unverified footage of a jet falling from the sky and some pretty nasty images of, of, of debris and bodies on the floor. That is James Waterhouse, Ukraine correspondent with the BBC, who joined Sarah on drive time after six. I'm in Kiev at the moment. The news was met with a fair few gasps. I think, you know, in a two months where we're talking about a man who led a failed armed rebellion against mm. Vladimir Putin. He's kept his public profile quite low since deciding to call off his drive on Moscow in June. Um, he'd have recently appeared in a video claiming to be in Africa, but we don't know for sure that he was on the jet. But nevertheless, this is quite a quite a quite dramatic news, certainly here in Ukraine. And while the obvious conclusion might be that Prigozhin is now dead, according to John Everard, former British ambassador to Belarus, who talked to Claire, it's possible, but not necessarily true. Notice that what they've said is that one, uh, Prigozhin was on the passenger list, and two, all the passengers on board have died. That doesn't quite come to saying that Prigozhin is dead. Remember, Claire, there were two aircraft, not one. One fell, fell out of the sky. The other appears to have gone back to Moscow and disappeared into the mists. Nobody has talked about what happened to it or, crucially, what happened to the people on board. Just because Prigozhin was on the passenger list doesn't necessarily mean that he was actually on that aircraft. If you were Prigozhin, would you fly on the same aircraft as your number two, as Utkin? I think if I was flying two aircraft, I might sort of simply split up the, the, the leadership team and put one on the other aircraft. Now, if this was an attempt to kill Prigozhin, and Prigozhin is actually still alive, uh, it's not surprising that all the bodies, we are told, are unidentifiable, too badly burned. If they weren't too badly burned to be identified when they crashed, you can bet your bottom dollar that they were very soon after, that somebody found a lot of petrol and made sure that you can't disprove that Prigozhin was on that aircraft. Like everything else in modern Russia, the whole thing sinks into a morass of suspicions, doubt and general paranoia. But it's just possible that Prigozhin may not be quite as dead as we're being told. Now, Ukraine insists it had nothing to do with the crash. And given Prigozhin's attempt in June to topple Putin, might suspicions justifiably fall on the Kremlin? On the News at One, Roland Oliphant, foreign correspondent with The Telegraph. The belief certainly would seem among Western intelligence agencies, and I think you've been speaking to your sources, is that uh, the Kremlin, Putin, was behind this. I, I think that has to be the working assumption. I mean, after after the mutiny on, on June 24th, when uh, Mr. Utkin and Mr. Prigozhin marched, basically marched on Moscow, seized control of uh, a major Russian city, Rostov and Don, and sent an army basically marching towards Moscow in what looks like an attempt to oust Vladimir Putin, although they denied that. Um, they said they were just complaining about the defense ministry. Um, there was no real way someone like Vladimir Putin can tolerate that and that anyone can be left alive. Um, of course, he made a deal which raised eyebrows at the time. Um, it, it looked like Mr. Prigozhin had maybe been forgiven, that he'd be allowed to carry on his mercenary activities um, in Africa. But once this news broke yesterday, uh, nobody was really surprised. Everyone realized, well, what other outcome um, could there have been? Someone like Vladimir Putin cannot 
allow himself to be shown as weak by not cramming down like a ton of bricks on a challenge like that. However, for their part, the Kremlin have dismissed any speculation that they were involved, calling it an absolute lie. But if Pergosian is indeed dead, what might that mean for Russia? On Thursday's drive time, Cormac put this to Cure Giles of Chatham House. What impact do you think that will have on the war, number one, and on the Wagner group, number two? Well, first of all, on the war, not a great deal, because Wagner had, of course, been already pulled back from the front line of Ukraine uh, with Ukraine when they, they mounted that mutiny and that march on Moscow. And so now if the Wagner group is actually dispersed, they won't be able to put that back into the front line to try to withstand Russia's, uh, excuse me, Ukraine's offensive to liberate its occupied territories. Wagner itself is a whole other question. Now, how Russia is going to deal with this group of organized, well-trained, well-armed people that are now going to be even more upset with the Russian state is something we'll only see over the next couple of days. But let me just lead on from from something that uh, Kira said just a moment ago. One of the most astonishing parts of the, the coverage and how this is being discussed both in Russia and beyond is the way it's being accepted as normal and natural that Russia carries out mass murder to solve its political problems. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the way in which that's just kind of accepted with a shrug of the shoulders as, as business as usual in Moscow just says so much about how far Russia has regressed and how far away it is now from, from being any kind of normal civilised country. Back in a bit. Welcome back. With Oliver on the 9 o'clock show, Yes, All Change, Paul Lynch, whose book Profit Song has been long listed for the Booker Prize at Fancy. It is set in Ireland, but not an Ireland we might know. This Ireland is a totalitarian state. The book's principal character is Ailish, a working mother with kids whose husband is one day taken by the state. I often have this sense of when fiction gets called dystopian, that mm. there's, a, there's an element of the paper mache about it, that, that it feels sort of, you know, it's kind of been, been pieced together in a certain kind of, you know, kind of way that's a little bit artificial. And I just thought, if I'm really going to, if I'm going to do this, it needs to be as realistic as possible. It really needs to feel like the now. It needs to feel yeah. like this is a world we all know. So, I mean, Ailish, is, she's, she's shopping in supermarkets. You know, she's picking her kids up from the crash. You know, she's dropping the kids off to school. It's, it's the world that I live you yeah. know, it's 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 really no different, and that's why I'm saying it's so unnerving because she spots one of the guards in the supermarket, just a tiny little example, yeah. and he's just an ordinary guy in, um, I think, cheap uh, runners, yeah, and a rain jacket and a, and a GA jersey. He's got a GA jersey on, you know, and he's there with his wife. His wife's throwing stuff into the trolley, and yeah. and she has this moment where she's like, he's he's just like he's like a man you pass on the street. He's a man in your community who smiles hello, but he's also now part of this this, this the other side, so to speak. When I was writing the book, I was very aware of certain events that had occurred. I remember being really, like, so quietly obsessed about this, about what happened with Syria, how a country could could just implode. A modern country could literally yeah. just implode on itself, and how so many millions of people could 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 be leaving, and so many hundreds of thousands of people getting on those boats. And I just kind of thought to myself consistently, what what does it take for an ordinary person to get on one of those boats? Do you stay and hope things will get better or run while you still can? She has a sister in, in Canada who's who's kind of saying to her, you know, maybe you need to get out. You know, her dad says to her, maybe you need to get out. And the sister at one point says to her, you know, history is a silent record of people who did not know when to leave. And I find that really interesting as a writer is how do you know yeah. when it's time to go? How do you know like when 
Like, because when you when you go, you have to you have to leave everything behind. You leave yes. your house behind. You leave your job. You're very often going to a country where you have no contacts. Maybe you don't even speak the language. How do you make that decision? And so she's getting this pressure. Her father saying, maybe it's time to leave the country. And she, but she's like, don't be ridiculous, because she all she can see is just the things she's caught up with, her. Mm. and and. And this for me is, is what's what's just so important for me about this story is this is this is the complexity of life. People are really caught up in their lives. And I think lives to be alive right now is I think the complexity that we're all facing as human beings is, is it seems to be greater than ever. Prophet Song by Paul Lynch, it does indeed sound very interesting. And in the course of that interview, he told Oliver about last year. For him, a terrible year. I remember driving in the car to James's. I remember walking through, um, walking through the corridor and being taken to a room and being told that they'd found a tumor on my kidney. And that was that was you know it's it's a moment that strips the skin off you. And it's I, I mean I suppose we all we're all born with with this sort of cloak of, of invincibility and that that you know we, we sort of I'm going to live to a hundred and uh, you know aren't I great with myself. Yeah. And that, at that moment, it was shattered completely. And I went home and sat in a chair for two days and, and just sort of, you know, because um, I have young children. And, and so, but, you know, I was, went into surgery very quickly and I donated a kidney to the incinerator at the hospital. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I have one kidney now and I'm cancer free. And uh, I have to say that the way I was treated by my surgeon, by the doctors, by the nurses was just, you know, I thought to myself, aren't I lucky to be alive now in this country? In your two days, what are you thinking? Oh, I saw, I saw, I saw the end. I mean, you know, I, I, I say to people, that, you know, I saw the face of the Medusa, you know, and I, I, I think that when you see that, you don't forget it. You, you, you can't unlearn that. It's not something you, 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 you can unlearn. You carry it with you now. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to hear, and, and it's good news, though, that you're cancer-free. Yeah, now. I am, yeah, yeah. Is it good to have this gift that you have, that you have somewhere to channel uh, this yeah. remembrance of suffering? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's, the word suffering is interesting because we have to get up close to suffering if we're going to have empathy. And as a writer, that's something I'm very interested in doing is how do I deepen my own empathy? And I think what I've been through has widened sort of how I see, it's deepened how I see the world. And I do have these sort of moments where I'm sort of pulled out of everything and I'm just watching and I'm just thinking, I'm here, it's, this, is, this is extraordinary. And I'm very grateful for that. I mean, I, I, you, it's, not, it's not something you unlearn. I don't think that you go back to the old conditioning. Yeah. You're, you find yourself... Every day, just there's always a little moment where you go, I'm still here. Paul Lynch with Oliver. Now, if you're heading to the supermarket later, shake yourselves, people, because you need to be up before your breakfast to get ahead of the marketing. Joining Claire, Deirdre Robertson of the Behavioural Research Unit at the ESRI. She brought us the phrase bundling. I wonder sometimes how the two for three works when you really don't want three packets of burger buns or salmon fillets, but you buy them because, because why, Deirdre? Yeah, so bundling is also really effective, which is what it's called when you're, you're bundling multiple things into a packet, either different products or the same packet. And what seems to happen is that the whole is viewed as a good deal. So, you know, OK, it's three for a tenner and we tend to perceive that as a much better deal than if we were to pick up 
three individual ones. But at the same time, we value those individual parts less. So you might be more likely to waste one of the individual packets within a deal of three than if you bought those three individually. So it's like we we overweight the value of the deal and yet under uh, value the individual products within mm-hmm. it. And if you're online, thought about buying something, but then stopped yourself, thought better of it. Don't worry, they'll remind you. Here is Amanda Radcliffe, former lecturer in retail marketing and strategy at TU Dublin. You know, this reminder, this helpful um, email letting gently reminding you that, you know, um, you had looked at these items, you put them into your basket, um, you know, but don't worry, you haven't lost out. We're holding <laughs> on to them, you know, for you. So how lovely of you. So you kind of, you know, you feel looked after or you feel stalked. Oh, or the other and way. listen, there's <laughs> another element to that as well. There's only two left in your size now. So, you know, yes, yeah. <laughs> The clock is ticking. Again, trust is very important there. So this kind of low stock selling fast, that's nearly worse, I suppose, because, I mean, that's easily said. Um, However, if they say there's only two left in your size, there really, I suppose, should be. So it's a question of how much trust you have in that retailer. Mm, We're saying nothing. Meanwhile, with Ray, live in studio. Hairbrush at the ready. And I wonder why, wonder why we break down to make things alright. And I wonder why I can't seem to tell you goodbye. Yes, I wonder why. Oh, baby, I wonder why. Yeah. Curtis Steigers. So many S's. What a name. <laughs> it is. It's well, a rock and roll name, though, isn't it? Curtis Tigers. That's nice. Thank you. Curtis Tigers. So. Yeah. It's, it's always been trouble because there are two S's in a row. So you, I always feel like I have to say, I'm Curtis Tigers. As opposed to Curtis, Curtis Tigers. Tigers. Yes. Yeah, yes. Which is... Tigers, maybe not, but you will recall the hair, the mane of a lion. But to reduce him simply to the hair, as wonderful as it was, would be doing him a disservice. And his love is the saxophone, rhythm and blues, as well as jazz. Now, he's in town to play with the RTE Concert Orchestra, but as he told Ray, his 90s foray into pop was something of a detour. I signed with a pop label, with Clive Davis, big, yes. uh, legendary uh, record uh, So mo- big mogul. that he was featured in the Whitney Houston movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, he was he was really the star of, of his record company. Arista, been, Arista. Ar- Arista, yeah. Arista. 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 And... Uh, uh, I was writing pop songs at the time, so I made a pop record, assuming that he would love me for my art and let me make a jazz record uh-huh. next, and then another pop record, and then I could make my singer-songwriter record. What I found is that he didn't love me for my art. He wanted me to do the same thing over again, only he wanted other people to write my songs for my second record. So I kind of had to dismantle that pop career. I kind of had to you know, kick at the stall to get out and do... That must have been very difficult, that... was it? Because you're only, you're still a young man. Yeah. Finding it, your way. It hurt. It was painful because... How did I... those chats go? So, second oh, album... <laughs> we, oh, we, we just, we disagreed. We agreed to disagree. I mean, he, he eventually did 
give me about a page and a half in his bio, in his autobiography, did which he? I was really surprised right. about. What did he say I about thought, you? He, he said he was, you know, he, I was kind of his heartbreak. I was the one, the one that just got away. Uh, but then he said, but Curtis is very successful in the jazz world, plays jazz festivals. So he, he was, he, he uh, played it much nicer than I, he could have. So you were in his office, sat, probably sat in the same couch as Whitney Houston. Absolutely. When The first time I went in there, I'm sitting there, behind him is a picture of him with Bruce Springsteen, a picture of him with Whitney, a picture of him with uh, Patti Smith, the picture with Miles Davis, and I thought, I probably should sign with this guy. Which he did. But if we heard names like Whitney Springsteen, Miles Davis, watch your toesies, because here comes some more rather spectacular name drops, but done with such charm. I went to a a brunch with my now ex-wife. The the two of us went to a brunch with all these big stars. You know, Kenneth Branagh was there and and Billy Connolly and and Paul Brady was there. And uh, um, uh, Elton took us around to see the grounds of his amazing house. It was just uh, outside of Windsor Castle uh, proper. And uh, we come around a corner and there's Billie Jean King. Elton John introduced me to Billie Jean King. It was just like the craziest, the craziest thing. Um, Elton was really lovely to me has always been great to me. I mean, I see him once every decade or so, but every time he treats me like we're dear friends yeah. and, uh, you know, he spent he spent some time with me backstage in my hometown chatting with me before his Boise. show in Boise, Idaho, exactly. Yeah. And then I stood on the side of the stage and he... he, uh, he dedicated uh daniel his song daniel to me ah. in my hometown uh, where in the you know in the town where i listened to his records as a 10 year old i was bawling like a baby i just tears streaming down my face he's a he's a good man yeah that's elton now prince i did open for prince here and i yeah. i didn't want did to you meet, meet him i didn't want to why because he was a god he was a f- he was more of a mythical figure to me and i felt like if i met him and he wasn't very friendly which could have been, you know. I mean, people people are different and different. Never meet different. your heroes. Some well, so many of my heroes have been wonderful, but I just thought, you know what? I'll just watch Prince, and I did. We stood and we watched him stand outside of his little trailer, and he stood. He, he looked like Prince. He 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 just kind of stared off into space with that that he he had this aura that I didn't want to breach. Yes. So I just studied him on stage. It was one of the greatest. Watching him on stage was maybe the greatest lesson that I've ever learned as a musician. He was a bloody genius. genius. He was so great, especially that. I mean, it just that day he threw a microphone into the air and it spun, 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 spun. He did a he did a twirl. The microphone landed in the hands of a guy in front of the stage who was there to catch it. And then he started playing an amazing guitar solo and sang. He was so good. And that was one of my favorite, my favorite uh, moments. What a sweetheart. Curtis Steiger is Boise, Idaho's most famous son. But as he did admit, not a wildly competitive field. It's not a huge place. It's, I was looking it up. Quarter of a million people. You're one yeah. of the you're one of the most famous people to come out of Boise. <laughs> well, that's not saying much, but yeah. Well, I mean, Maureen O'Hara. Maureen O'Hara came. <clears throat> yeah, she came from Idaho. Yeah. And she ended up living in Idaho in her in her later years again. Yeah. Um, there are, you know, Paul Revere and the Raiders. Remember them? Kicks, not really. Ki- oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> David Lynch. David Lynch lived there, yeah. Yes, yes. He's, they say, and, and the man who invented the first remote control. There you go, Boise, oh, Idaho. Very nice, well done. You've done your homework. You know more than I do about my state. Curtis Steiger is with Ray. Well, that is almost it from this week's playback, but... Remember the show 20 Questions from earlier? Oh, yes. Pony up. Here's the answer you were all waiting for. Is it a special breed of bull? It is, yes. A breed of Chardonnay. That's it, yes.
Who loves you, baby? Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week and write a reply to Owen Paul. You're my-